Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And once again, I just want to thank you guys so much. Um, we are doing so well. Just love the fact that when I go on and I see all the listeners from around the world, New Zealand, you guys just keep coming through over and over again. Thank you so much. And now out of nowhere, we have Germany coming in and listening, Sweden, Ireland. You guys are just coming in out of nowhere and listening. And I just appreciate it so much. I really, really, really love that you guys are coming from all over the world. And just, it's wonderful and amazing. But like I said, New Zealand, you guys are my third biggest demographic and I just really appreciate it. I never ever thought that, you know, you people on the other side of the country, of the world, not the country, excuse me, would uh, listen to me on a regular basis. And guys, we are slowly closing in on 10,000 downloads. So it may not seem like a lot to you, but for me, someone who didn't think that this podcast was going to last even a year, that is a big deal. So just keep on listening please share this podcast you know put it on your socials we hit that 10,000 I promise I will do an extra special podcast um if you guys are not aware um I guest starred on the two scoops uh YouTube channel we did a reaction to Knives Out so if you want to head over to YouTube I'll put a link below so you can check out the video um it was super fun we're gonna do another one uh, for May, sometime during May, we're going to do another one. Uh, if you would like, uh, let me know. You can hit me up on uh, Twitter or on Instagram to let me know if you would like to have the guys from Two Scoop uh, take part in a podcast. Uh, I'm sure that they would love to do it. So if you would like to see some crossovers and guest stars, just let me know. Um, I have talked and my friend Tom Benjamin, the tarot reader, has uh, talked about uh, the fact that he would love to stop by and do a podcast as well. So we are, I am putting together uh, some people stopping by and having some guest people on the podcast in the future. So uh, I look forward to having some people stopping by. So once again thank you guys so much and just keep listening um and uh just keep and try and share so we can hit that 10,000 uh download mark and we'll have something extra special for you guys for that so this week we are looking into the super bizarre case of two people Everybody has strange neighbors. Everybody has things that get out of control within the neighborhood. This is something extremely next level. So let's get right into it. Profiling a fire setter is difficult because the characteristics of arsonists are often way too general. Some arsonists are emotionally based, others are goal directed, and some are a combination of the two. The size of the fire has very little to do with the motivation of the arsonist. Perhaps the most challenging aspects of arson investigation is determining the arsonist's intent and motive, the impulse, reason, or incentive that causes this behavior. We will examine the more common offender-based motives of fire setters. 
According to the National Fire Protection Association, arson is a, is a crime of maliciously and intentionally or recklessly starting a fire or causing an explosion. An incendiary fire is when the fire is intentionally ignited in an area or under circumstances when slash where there should not have ever been a fire. Mass arson involves an offender who sets three or four more fires at the same site or location within a limited time frame. Spree arson occurs when three or more fires are set at separate locations with no emotional cooling off period in between. Serial arson involves an offender who sets three or more fires with a cooling off period or a delay in between the fires. The excitement motivated fire setter is excited by the actual fire setting and very often the activities surrounding the fire suppression efforts. The thrill could also include the pathological need for attention. Unlike other fire setters, these individuals may stay on the scene in order to be in a position to respond to the fire and become a hero. Some will mingle in the crowd to watch the fire and or return later to assess the damage. Typically, it's vegetation, stacks of lumber, construction sites, dumpsters, or abandoned properties that are targeted, but occupied residential properties may be as well. A match, a cigarette, or a delay device is often used, especially for vegetation fires, but simple incendiary devices can also be utilized. Typically, these offenders are adolescents or young adult males. They may already have a history of nuisance offenses and are perceived by others as being socially inept. They are known to keep journals, notes, records, and maps documenting these fires, as well as newspaper articles, if there are any. They, have often, had they often have police or fire scanners or apps that allow them to have access to this type of information on their phone. In the 2016 book, The Arsonist Profiles, Analyzing Arson Motives and Behavior, author Ed Norsog writes that many firefighter arsonists are well-regarded. They're the type of gung-ho heroes who are peer group leaders and viewed as adrenaline junkies within their departments. They consider their job as firefighters more like a religion than a profession. Another trait that Norscott notes is that some have a history of immature behavior and aggressive driving histories. Now, vandalism-motivated arson is a malicious or mischievous fire setting that results in damage to property. Sometimes the fire will be set whenever the opportunity arises, but most are set after school or work or on the weekends. Typically, they will use available material to set the fires with matches or cigarette lighters. Due to using available material, fingerprints and shoe prints are often left behind, as well as the matches and cigarettes, fireworks or spray paint cans if tagging is involved. Vegetation, residential area, and schools are very common targets. The vandalism-motivated arsonist may not just be a single offender. Sometimes they are a group of juvenile males who likely still live at home with their parents. The offenders may already be known to police. Typically, they live a short distance from the crime scene and they will walk or ride their bikes. Usually, they will leave the scene after setting the fire and often won't return to watch. 
Authors of Kirk's Fire Investigation, the 8th edition, David J. Icove and Gerald A. Haynes, found that on average, vandalism arsonists will be questioned twice before being arrested and charged. They tend to minimize their responsibility and externalize the blame. Revenge and spite-motivated fires are set in retaliation for real or imagined injustice perceived by the offender. Revenge can also be a component in vandalism fires, and some researchers assert that revenge is a motive in all arsons to some degree. The victim generally has a history of interpersonal or professional conflicts with the offender, like a landlord, a tenant dispute, employee employers, or a love triangle. The fires can be set months or years after the precipitating event. Former intimate offenders frequently burn clothing, bedding, or personal effects. Female offenders often target something of significance to the victim, such as their vehicle or their personal effects. Kind of like and when um, that very famous scene with Angela Bassett, where she takes all the guy's stuff outside and sets it on fire on top of his car. Societal revenge fire often targets institutions, government facilities, corporations, or universities. Revenge arsonists tend to have below average intelligence and often commit crime in highly emotional states while under the influence of drugs or alcohol. According to Eichhoven Haynes, the offenders are predominantly adult males who live in rental properties. They are often considered loners and have a history of unstable relationships. Often, they have had previous law enforcement contact for breaking and entering, theft, and or vandalism. Revenge and spite-motivated fires are some of the more serious arsons, typically due to the emotions involved. Pyromania, however, is actually quite rare. The motivation for setting the fire is sexual, and some even masturbate while setting the fire. In the past 35 years, there have only been a handful of cases involving individuals who were sexually aroused by setting fires, and then call 911 in order to see the response. After the individuals are arrested, charged, and paraded before booking, they're allowed to have a phone call. The phone calls from time to time tend to be 911 to report their own fire. Research shows that fire setters are significantly more likely to have been registered with psychiatric services compared with other criminal offenders, and four times more likely compared with community controls. Between 10% to 50% of patients who are admitted to medium security forensic mental health services have records of deliberate fire setting. Fire setting in adolescence and early adulthood predicts schizophrenia in later life from time to time. Fire setting behavior is associated with animal cruelty in juveniles. The other statistically significant risk factors being male and gender and the victim of sexual abuse. Arsonists differ from typical violent offenders in being more socially isolated and lacking coping skills and the prevalence of suicide is significantly higher than in control groups. Females are reported to commit nearly one third of deliberately set fires, but less is known about the psychopathological and criminal characteristics of female fire setters. Female fire setters in a recent study were more often diagnosed with depression, substance use, and personality disorders than male arsonists. 
fire setters appear to be a discrete group of criminal offenders with a distinguishing constellation of psychological characteristics. This suggests the necessity of specialized treatment to target these individuals in prison and before they ever become offenders. Greater research is needed to guide treatment effectively, but a small study of 63 male and female patients with a history of deliberate fire setting published by Tyler and colleagues in 2018 has tracked the efficacy of intervention programs for mentally disordered offenders. The results suggest that the treatment significantly reduced the compulsion to start fires, but far more research is necessary to extend and confirm this small-scale study. Because views towards arsonists have changed over time, according to a 2018 review of pyromania in Western Europe between the years of 1800 and 1950 by Lydia de Holsen, a criminologist at Ukraine University, the data shows that the pendulum swinging is swinging back and forth from being viewed as a crime to being regarded as mental illness. If viewed as an illness, punishing arsonists for a form of mental illness becomes unethical. But there is no doubt that more needs to be done to reduce the horrific destruction by fire that is being suffered by us as a society. While current debate centers on the influence of climate change and raging numbers of intensity in wildfires, less attention is given to the understanding in the mind of a person who sets the fire to begin with. Society faces a challenge of grappling with the alternating global climate and the mind of the person who sets the fire. Trying to prevent devastating destruction of fires sweeping places like California and Australia, and increasing support for psychological research and greater mental health services seems to provide an effective and easily attainable way to fight this issue. Now, our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. 
athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Akamak is an old place, a rural one, established in 1608 or 1634 or 1670, depending on which definition of established is being used. It's a farming community, at least originally that's what it was, making its money off of potatoes and lumber. At about 10.30 on a Monday evening, Deborah Clark followed her friend outside and saw he was right. That old sad house across the field was burning down and the flames were rolling in her direction over the brittle field. She ran next door to warn her neighbor and at 10.41 on November 12th in 2012, she called the Eastern Shore 911 Center, flustered and out of breath. I'm just calling cause somebody done set that house on fire on Dennis Drive, she said. Deborah Clark's fire was the first one in Accomack County. In the span of just five months, there would be 76 more. Just after one in the morning on November 13th, three hours later and 13 miles away from where Clark called 911, Helen Hasty went to let her dog out and saw flames surrounding an outbuilding on a farm she owned. They're not insured. I mean, they're vacant. They're just old shacks. They've been there for like 100 years, she told the operator who answered. She hadn't heard anything. She hadn't seen anything. She just thought, oh my God, there she goes, up in flames. The next 911 call came eight minutes later. A brush fire had been set near a ditch and it burned down a tenth of an acre of woods. 21 hours after that, a sheriff's deputy on his way home called to report an abandoned house was burning. Another call followed at 1045 and another one at 1143. It was a little more than 24 hours after the first fire had been set and five more had been set. The Accomack County Sheriff's Office doesn't even have its own fire investigators. So Virginia State Police sent special agents to examine the properties. The agents determined that all the fires had been set intentionally. Once the arson started, outsiders would occasionally wonder why nobody had been caught after all this time after all these fires. I mean, I can comprehend why it lasted so long, said Jen Ockelbacher, the mayor of Parksley. I mean, first of all, there's no traffic off of Route 13, and especially after eight or nine, you won't see any more than two cars. People in Accomack County don't waste money making unnecessary car trips. They have no cost to drive down these deep country roads where a lot of fires were set. I mean, he stated that People just didn't have a chance to see who could be setting the fires. And the second reason that the fires kept happening, the simple supply. As for running out of abandoned buildings, he stated, nah, they're never gonna run out of abandoned buildings out here. And as far as pitch black county roads, I know exactly what that, that's like. Like one town over from me, that's where my pharmacist is. I chose to switch to like a very small apothecary and it gets dark at like five o'clock in the winter here. So if I have to go pick up my meds after five, it is pitch black. There's one street lamp every mile and I know exactly what they're talking about. You do not want to be out there after like the sun goes down. So I absolutely understand what he's saying. The police issued statements and reward offers. They even quadrupled the reward offers up to $25,000. Residents, given to more paranoid explanations, 
thought that the federal government might be responsible, maybe even using drones. Yes, because they want to burn down all of your empty buildings using drones. That's, they have nothing better to do. An industrious group of armchair detectives who called themselves the Eastern Shore Arsonist Hunters purchased motion-triggered cameras, positioning them at a house they thought would be a likely target. When they came back the next day, they discovered a police camera was there too, trained on their movements. It was the 44th fire of the series that took place at the residence of J.D. Shreves that deviated from the pattern. In February, three months into the arsons, Shreves left his house near Accomac's northern border to drop off his two daughters at their mother's house. The round trip drive took no more than 25 minutes. Back at home, he thought he smelled something burning, but when he walked from room to room, he didn't find anything and decided he must have imagined it. Later that evening, though, when his daughters returned, they smelled it too. This time, he took a flashlight and walked around the outside, and on the back of his house, he found that the siding had been pulled away and a lit piece of cloth had been stuffed in between the boards. He was no expert, but... That lit rag, it was obviously a fire that had been set intentionally. If this was true, it meant an aberration from the pattern. Shreve's house wasn't abandoned. It was occupied by a family. And then there was the sequencing. The fact that the fire was set in the 25 minutes while he was gone. Emmett, someone timed it perfectly. Emmett, someone had been watching him. There was another detail that many didn't seem to think meant anything at the time, but... It was the fact that the fire was set on Valentine's Day. Now, by February of 2013, Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick had been dating for about two years. Everybody knew Charlie. Some people knew him as Charlie Applegate, the surname of the stepfather who had raised him. But everybody knew him in one way or another. He was of average height, five foot eight. He seemed smaller because of how he hunched himself over when he walked. He had red hair cut close to his head, a goatee, and big blue eyes. He'd once been a volunteer firefighter at the Tassley Station in the south central part of the county, although he hadn't been active for several years. Now he just ran an auto shop on Tassley Road where he did body and paint work. He used to do the same stuff for his stepfather, uh, a shop that was across the street, but they had a falling out and they no longer spoke anymore. One time, Wayne Wessels, an acquaintance of the family, went to Charlie for some bodywork. Charlie didn't have the right stuff, but thought his stepdad might. Rather than call him himself, he told Wayne to go across the street and pick up the supplies because he didn't want to talk to his stepdad. The rift had been in part over drugs. Well, that's what people speculated. Charlie, 38, had been experimenting ever since he was 13. And by his late teens, he had a pretty bad crack addiction. According to court documents from the 90s, in 1994, when he was living with an uncle who looked the other way while his nephew stole his coin collection, a gun, a 10-speed bicycle, but who absolutely couldn't when Charlie began writing bad checks in his name. They were for relatively small amounts, $65 here, $110 there, but there were a lot of them, and Charlie eventually was charged with 24 counts of forgery. Okay, that's not a little bit. Okay, 24 counts of forgery. For those of you who don't understand, back in the 90s, when passing bad checks could get you put in jail, 24 counts of forgery, and had they put check hiding on top of that, that's that's felony time. That's that's a lot of time. 
1996 letter from a probation officer recounts how he was put into a drug treatment program, relapsed, and then referred to a mental health counselor, and then relapsed again. One night in mid-2011, he went to Shucker's Roadhouse, a rural Akamak bar. He was carrying two eight balls of cocaine. Some friends had set him up on a date. Tanya Bundick did not approve of drugs. She was a single mother raising two boys on a nursing assistant's salary. She didn't use illegal substances and didn't associate with people who did. When Tanya met Charlie, she told him that if he was going to be around her kids, he couldn't be on drugs. For her, he went clean, he later told people. For her, that very night they met, he flushed those drugs down the toilet. Like Charlie, Tanya, 41, had grown up in Akamak. Bundick was a good Eastern Shore name, appearing on law offices and small businesses throughout the county. Although Tanya remembers having a happy childhood, other, recall, other people recall her as an outsider. She wore cheap shoes and clothes that looked like hand-me-downs. Other students harassed her on the school bus or in the cafeteria. As Tanya got older, she grew into her looks. She was fine bone, almost Nefertiti-ish. She put highlights in her thick brown hair and wore meticulously applied makeup. She was 5'6", with a figure that was long-limbed and hourglass-shaped. She would dance on tables when she went out weekly to the bar, which wasn't unusual for the establishment itself, but sometimes she'd do it just by herself when no one else was joining in. And on one of those nights uh, that Kelly Rose, one of the waitresses, first met her, she walked into the bar wearing nothing but a bra and underwear beneath her trench coat. Privately, Tanya always thought of herself as a homebody. She liked to read novels. She liked to be at home with her boys. An old boyfriend said she kept to herself. She was a showy introvert, a private exhibitionist. Do you see the contradictions here? She, he's referring to her as a private exhibitionist, yet she goes out in public in just a bra and underwear underneath a trench coat. That in and of itself is being just a straight up exhibitionist. But yet people are kind of trying to soften her image by saying she's a private exhibitionist. On the night of her first date with Charlie, she, having been set up by mutual friends, they both opened up talking for hours in the parking lot. He told her about his troubled past. She told him about her children. She loved how easygoing he was and the way he laughed. She told friends, you could say anything to him. He would just laugh and laugh. His smile would light up his face. Charlie ended up moving in with Tanya to the white bungalow she shared with her sons in Parksley. In the same building that Charlie had his garage, Tanya opened a business of her own, selling clothing in the front office. She named the store A Tiny Taste of Two after the pet name that her father called her. Virginia State Troopers Troy L. Johnson and Willie Burke had been waiting for about three hours. It was April Fool's Day, 2013. They got into position a little after 8 p.m. and set up their equipment. Night vision goggles, a portable radio, and hunter's camouflage about 50 yards out of view behind the tree line. Johnson and Burke's task that night was to monitor a house at 19322 Airport Drive in Melfa, near the southern border of the county. 
The home's owner, Claude Henry, had purchased the house for about 19... Damn, I wish I could purchase a house for about 19,000. And planned to fix it up, but it was still dilapidated enough that police added it to the list of abandoned properties. At 11.25, they saw a gold minivan stop in the road. A passenger leaped out and ran at a dead sprint toward the back of the house. Johnson saw a series of sparks. To the trooper, it seemed like time slowed down as he waited, just to be sure the figure was the arsonist they were trying to catch. Finally, the fire took, and the figure ran back towards the road. Johnson and Burke chased, but just as they were clearing the forest, the minivan reappeared. The figure, wearing dark baggy clothes, jumped into the passenger side and the van drove off. The police vehicle carrying Accomac Sheriff Sergeant Wayne Greer was the first to respond. He pulled over the minivan at a traffic light about half a mile down the road where Rural Airport Drive intersects with the more populated Route 13. Charlie Smith emerged from the passenger side and put his hands up. Martin Kritz, a state trooper who had arrived shortly after Greer, approached the driver, Tanya Bundick, who was wearing a white top and yoga pants. He asked if she was carrying anything he should know about, and she said, well, I got a chapstick in my bra. By the time Todd Goodwin, the longtime sheriff of Accomack County, showed up at the scene, the intersection was swarming with police cars. Goldwyn went over to Greer's vehicle, where Charlie had been placed in the back seat. Charlie looked up at the sheriff, who he had known for 20 years, the way people in this county know everybody. Todd, he said, I'm sorry, but I didn't light them all. There are things Charlie and Tanya agree on about what led them to the house on Airport Road, but there are also aspects to the story that Charlie and Tanya don't agree on at all. Tanya found out that her older son had a behavioral disorder when he was a young child, but the problems got increasingly more and more severe as he entered adolescence. The issues ultimately led to several hospitalizations and to him being placed in an in-home school program. Tanya was forced to quit her nursing job to care for him. The clothing store was a response to this chain of events. Tanya thought running her own business would allow her the flexibility to tend to her son. Charlie's life had been upended in its own way. His mother passed away in May of 2012 and Unbeknownst to Tanya, the death had caused him to start using again. He would later say he had had a daughter from a previous relationship and the girl's mother cut off this contact when she learned about the relapse. What embarrassed him even more than the drugs was something else that had happened with Tanya. The minute I fell in love, he later explained, my penis stopped working. He and Tanya hadn't had sex in more than a year. He would just psych his own self out, said Tanya, during a lengthy interview. In late 2012, around the time the arsons began, Tanya says Charlie's behavior changed. He started disappearing. While she stayed home with the children, he would tell her he would go back to the garage. He would claim he was finishing up a paint job or delivering an estimate to a customer, but he never worked nights like this before. He didn't seem to be bringing any money in despite the extra hours. Tanya worried he was cheating on her, although he denied it when she confronted him. Charlie has an incredibly different version of events. Charlie says Tanya knew exactly where he was and what was happening. On November 12th, the night Deborah Clark placed the first call to 911, 
Charlie and Janya were driving around Parksley. It was an evening ritual. He would come home after work and take her to McDonald's to get a coffee. According to Charlie, on this particular night, Tanya suddenly veered from the routine. They cruised past a peeling house on Dennis Drive, two miles from where they lived. It had been a rough week. Tanya, he says, had received more bad news about her son. They drove past that house and Charlie claims Tanya suggested they burn it down. Charlie says he figured it was a joke, but Tanya kept talking about it. Finally, he realized she was serious. She dropped him off near the abandoned house. He went inside, sat there for 10 minutes, but he didn't light anything. He then went back out to the car and lied. He told her he set the fire and they drove away. Over the next few hours, he says it was like something in Tanya softened. She started to share with him intimate details of her life she'd never shared before. And he couldn't help but think that her sudden forthcomingness was because of what she believed he'd done for her. I just couldn't let her down, he told the police. I mean, her son had just been torn to pieces. She didn't hit her kids. She didn't yell at them. She didn't do drugs. She just didn't have any outlets. So he admitted to her that he lied and that the house was still sanding. And then they drove back to the house and in the dark and in the empty, both of them and the county that they had grown up in, the county that they were struggling in, Tanya went in and lit the fire. When she came back to the car, she looked him in the face and said, never send a man to do what a woman should. She lit the next dozen too. He said it wasn't until the 15th fire on November 21st that this changed. Tanya was nearly spotted by the police. Unable to bear the thought of her being caught, Charlie decided he should take over. Most of the time, the fires were random, spur of the moment. Only a few of them were personal, like the fire set at J.D. Shreve's house. Shreve's was Tanya's ex-boyfriend. They had dated for six months and had broken up a couple years earlier. Shreve's had seen Tanya and Charlie out and about since then and had thought their conversations were cordial. But on Valentine's Day night, when Shreve's was walking his daughters to their grandmother's, Charlie was peering in his windows to make sure nobody was home. Pulling back the siding of the single-story house and stuffing an old shirt underneath, using a cigarette lighter to ignite the blaze. On or around March 30th, Charlie would tell police he and Tanya finally had sex for the first time in 18 months. Charlie Smith pled guilty to 67 counts of arson and one count of conspiracy to commit arson. Mr. Smith is incredibly remorseful, his attorney stated on October 30th, the day of his no contest bench trial. Those of you who don't know, a bench trial is when a judge determines it instead of an actual jury. And many times you have a better shot sometimes. Tanya Bundick was initially charged with one count of conspiracy and one count of arson for the final fire on Airport Road where the police stopped the minivan. She was originally placed in Accomack County Jail where Charlie was also being held. Her access to news was limited and she didn't know that Charlie had implicated her in his confession. He was still writing her love letters, she says. He would bury them by the flagpole in the Accomack exercise yard folded between plastic prison cutlery for her to retrieve during her own hour outside. 
He talked about still wanting to marry her. She thought that they were going to be together. She didn't know the extent of what his testimony held until she was finally let out on bond and saw excerpts of his confession that had been leaked to the media. In December, a month after Charlie had pleaded guilty, Tanya was charged with an additional 62 counts of arson. This time, she was sent to Eastern Shore Regional Jail, far away from Charlie. Her youngest son was sent to live with his father, and her older son was placed in foster care. She wrote poetry from her prison cell, which a friend posted on Facebook, in which she worried that she would be forgotten, like the fading seasons. She maintained her innocence, yes, because when I'm in prison facing 62 counts of arson, I worry about being forgotten like the fading seasons. In on the January 14th trial of Tanya Bundick, which would decide her fate on the initial two charges, it soon became the biggest spectacle the county had ever seen. It was moved from Accomack over the bay to Virginia Beach, a trip that takes 90 minutes. The first time in dec decades an Accomack case had required a change of venue. Late on the morning of January 14th, the defense called Tanya to the stand. Her hair was tangled and she wore the same clothes as she had the day before. What she talked about on the stand was not a story of romance so much as it was a story of life in rural county in 2013. At 12.39 p.m. on January 14th, Tanya's lawyers re-entered the courtroom and announced that their client would like to change her plea. During a recess, she said that they told her they tried to read the room and it didn't look good. The jurors, who would have sentencing power if she were found guilty, seemed as though they believed Charlie over her. Because of this, the attorneys advised her to submit an Alford plea, in which a defendant does not admit guilt, but acknowledges that the state has presented enough evidence to result in a conviction. So with this, the judge sentenced her to seven years in prison. Now, in her second trial, it took a jury just over two hours on Tuesday, July 14, 2016, to return a guilty verdict against her. Now, it took them 45 minutes to sentence her to determine a sentence of three and a half years in a $10,000 fine. So altogether, she got 10 and a half years in jail. And um, Charlie, on the other hand, is looking at a altogether combined sentence of 15 years. He got a combined total of 15 years. So that's the story of Charlie and Tanya who decided to deal with their marital issues with arson. Um, well, not even their marital issues, their relationship issues with arson. Um, next week, we are going to look at a really um, well-known old Hollywood case. No, it's not the Black Dahlia. This is a case that involves a really well-known Hollywood actor. It was huge at the time, and it's just really, really bizarre. Um, so I hope you tune in to uh, find out about it. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.